When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at Bethel in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Lees about the new book, Brain Spotting Adventures in Neurology. For fans of Oliver Sacks and Henry Marsh, a glimpse into the fascinating world of modern neurology by a leading expert in the field. Well, Andrew, welcome to the show. Many thanks. So how are you? How was your week? Very good. Uh, I mean, the weather in London is not particularly good for this time of year, but um, otherwise things have been good. Excellent. Excellent. So can you tell us, what do you do? So I'm a neurologist, um, which I've been for 45 years now, working at the same hospital, uh, which is the National Hospital at Queen Square. It's a small boutique hospital specializing only in neurology, neurosurgery, and a little bit of psychiatry situated in the uh, quiet square in the West End of London. Um, It was founded in 1860 um, and was really the beginning of neurology in the United Kingdom. It it was built around the same time um, as Charcot was doing his pioneering studies in Paris at the Salpetriere Hospital. And it's managed to survive despite all the healthcare reforms and all the changes in society over the years. So it still really serves as a sort of cradle for British neurology. Oh, wow. It sounds like a really inspiring place. Yes, uh, it's inspiring because of the colleagues, really. I mean, I think we have almost 100 neurologists and neurosurgeons um, and a lot of very bright young clinical fellows so that you learn not you learn not just from your ancestors who have passed on their knowledge by word of mouth and the oral tradition of neurology. But you also learn, uh, of course, from your bright young fellows. So you're learning from the past and you're learning from the future at the same time. I mean, one of the <clears throat> potential disadvantages is that it's purely neurology. So that, that can lead to um, some difficulties uh, and incestuousness <laughs> in relation to the speciality and that we we don't at least in that hospital, have um, too much connection with people working in other medical specialities. But most of us um, work 
partly at the National Hospital and also at busy district general hospitals. So uh, this stops us getting too um, introverted and obsessed with neurology because I think that is potentially a danger because many of the uh, important advances in neurology have come um, out of general medicine or out of science, you know, so um, it's important to keep a very open mind and not become too narrow-minded and focused just on your particular speciality. You have a wealth of experience uh, throughout your stellar career, so what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? Uh, well, I would say be a light unto yourself, question everything. Um, uh, I, one, one of the things I've always remembered from my um, relationship, my virtual relationship with my invisible mentor, William Burroughs, who taught me in 19, the 1960s that nothing is true and everything is permitted. And I think... Uh, this is this is quite a, a good thing for young people to keep in mind. So that if you uh, if you have an idea, if you have a conviction, if you have a belief, even if everybody else in the community in which you were deride it, stick to your guns and don't let people um, put you off. And of course, as far as career is concerned, follow your dream. Don't don't be pushed into a system or a process um, that contravenes what you want to do. So, you know, we live in a increasingly controlled and regulated environment. And I think that it's important that at times you have to uh, fight against that or at least learn ways how to survive within it. So your latest book is Brain Spotting: Adventures in Neurology. So what inspired you to write it? Well, I've, I've you know, my career, I've written a, a large number of scientific papers. And as you probably know, um, you're not allowed to talk about yourself uh, when you're writing about science. Uh, that certainly wouldn't be de rigueur. So as I came towards the end of my career, I mean, I'm still seeing patients, but I've certainly downsized and I'm doing much less clinical work than I used to do. I wanted really to write about myself and um, not, not just for a sort of narcissistic uh, reason, but in the hope that uh, a speciality which had been so much fun and so much enjoyable, uh, given me so much enjoyment as much as and so much satisfaction that, that I could actually try and convey some of um, the things that I'd learned uh, during my apprenticeship and then as a consultant neurologist uh, to younger people. So it, it was um, one, one of my... Um, first teachers of neurology at University College Hospital, William Goody, um, who was a very interesting and cultured person. Um, where, when I started neurology, of course, he reminded me that it's uh, a very long apprenticeship, um, even longer than that of a Vestal Virgin in ancient Rome. So you, you, you need to study uh, and learn from patients for at least eight or nine years um, in order to become 
reasonably competent as a clinical neurologist. But he, he also gave me some other interesting uh, pieces of advice. For example, he told me not to spend too much time in the library reading textbooks of neurology, but rather spend time at the bedside talking to patients. And when I'd made a decision as to what neurological disorder they were suffering from, if I didn't know much about it, just go and look up a little bit about that particular condition uh, in the library, but don't, don't sort of start reading a textbook from start to finish. And then he gave me a couple of very interesting um, book recommendations rather than reading textbooks of neurology. He told me to read um, the Sherlock Holmes canon, which I'd already read as a schoolboy. So that, that was um, not too difficult for me to do, but I wasn't quite sure at that point why he was recommending it to me at the beginning of my neurological career. And then he gave me an even more um, challenging um, recommendation, and that was to read In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. Uh, he had a particular interest in time and neurology, which I suspect might have partly influenced this second literary recommendation. And then one day, um, as we were leaving the ward, he said to me, Lise, you know, neurology is a very serious business, but it must also be soulful. And again, I wasn't really quite sure what he meant by that at the time as a very young and insecure trainee. Uh, but as my career went on, um, I, I began to understand much more what he meant by romantic neurology and the importance of trying to understand the lives of the patients that we treat and that patients are much more than just a disease. And, and that in order to be a good neurologist, you need to get out uh, from the hospital and embrace yourself in the life of the patients who, who you treat. So um, what he said to me on another occasion was that, I like, Lise, I like to be able to, if I see a patient of mine in the street, uh, after they've been discharged from the hospital, I like to be able to talk to them about things other than their medical condition. And this struck a note with me and it, it, it um, made me in a way as a researcher become a sort of field worker uh, where I didn't confine my research into neurology to the hospital or to the laboratory. I went out into uh, the, the big wide world uh, where patients lived. So how did this approach differ to what we used to think about how neuro neurologists uh, treat their patients, at least when the, the um, uh, profession has just begun? Well, what, what, it, what really attracted me as a medical student to neurology was that it seemed to be more rational and based on a systematic approach, rather like carrying out a laboratory experiment. So the, the, the physical examination, which even today um, has not been superseded by technology, uh, is a very rigorous um, 
system that you start at the top of the brain, then you work down through the cranial nerves to the motor system, the sensory system, and so on. And remarkably, although, of course, we cannot see the brain in real life, um, of course, you can now get images of the brain with modern technology, but an image of the brain is, despite its um, definition, is still not exactly the same as the brain. So what, what is remarkable really about the um, physical examination, which we, we pay so much lip service to in neurology, uh, is that through uh, a system of semiotics, the elicitation of physical signs at the bedside, we can deduce what's actually going on um, inside the nervous system. So to give you an example, if, if I tap the knee jerk and the knee jerk is absent, this tells me that the, there is something wrong with the nerve root, the lumbar, the third lumbar nerve motor root, uh, and that the reflex arc has been damaged. So that helped, so the examination helps us enormously in localizing the site of the lesion. And you, so some neurosurgeons, for example, will say, well, we don't need that anymore uh, because we've got technology, we've got nerve conduction studies, we've got uh, brain scans and so on. So we don't need to waste time tapping people's reflexes. But the truth of the matter is that you cannot, even with the most sophisticated modern technology of today, you cannot get this information by using a machine. So it's very interesting that a hundred years on, mm. this formalized examination has um, survived. And uh, as I've already mentioned, I really do associate it in a little with the, the rigorousness that one needs in, in a, a chemistry experiment. Now, the history, the medical history is the other critical part of um, the neurological diagnostic system. And we are almost as detailed as psychiatrists in this. So we listen and to take a good medical interview uh, lasts probably, if you do it properly and you're seeing a new patient for at least 45 minutes. So you you know you so you by listening with intent and listening attentively, um, you can get the the diagnosis in at least three quarters of all patients with neurological problems. So it is still even in the twenty first century uh, the most reliable and most important aspect of clinical practice for a neurologist so that if you are good at taking a history and this takes a lot of practice you have to know when to be quiet you have to allow the patient to tell their own story without interrupting every 10 seconds and then you need to ask a few focused um open-ended questions in order to hone down on what you suspect from what the patient has taught you. So there is a very specific um, method uh, for taking the medical history that, that is used in medicine. It has similarities and differences, for example, to that of a 
criminal investigator or from a lawyer. Uh, so there are s slight differences in the approach, but all of them depend on listening very carefully and, and not only listening, but um, also paying attention to the patient's body language um, while they're actually uh, giving the clinical history. So you can pick up subliminal things like, is, is the patient very worried or anxious? Is there a hidden agenda? Um, is the patient depressed? Uh, all of these things you can pick up, uh, not necessarily through what they say, uh, but uh, through how they look while you're actually taking the history. So the history taking actually gives you another opportunity to, in a way, observe um, the patient. And the, <clears throat> the other thing which is quite important is to, to pay attention to the tone of the voice of the patient as they're giving the history. And over the years, I've also learned that the tone of my own voice is very um, important as a therapeutic aid. So that the way you speak to people um, in the medical consultation is, is, is absolutely important. Uh, it, it's, it, it can be therapeutic in its own right um, without you ne needing to get your um, prescription pad out or recommend surgery. Um, so the, these are very uh, important things, which I think uh, with, with all the exciting science and all the um, advances in what we can do for patients and in the technology particularly uh, have a tendency to be neglected because they take a bit of time and everybody curiously these days thinks they haven't got enough time to do anything, um, you know, not even enough time to think. So um, going back to Dr. Goody, um, one of the things he said when I started my training was, um, Lise, when, when do you spend time thinking? which again was something which um, I hadn't really thought of, but, but I thought of it a lot afterwards. And I, I do try to even now spend a little bit of the day away from my computer uh, thinking uh, about things, uh, important things. So does this approach to examination and relationship with patients contribute to what you call holistic neurology? It's, yeah, I mean, holistic is, I suppose, a term that means different things to different people. Mm -hmm. um, I, if it means that I'm interested in the, the life of the patient as well as um, just the disease that I've diagnosed, uh, then yes, I think it is that. Um, I think it's it, it's also um, uh, 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 it's also in a way uh, it's it's a word that's not used very much these days, but it's also a sort of romantic approach to uh, medicine um, in that um, it involves uh, compassion. Um, and, and I mean, I think compassion, in neurology, when I started, we had rather few treatments. It was, there was a bit of a joke in the medical profession that um, neurologists spent hours 
talking to people a bit like psychiatrists, but they didn't really have very many treatments to offer them. But happily, things have changed a little bit from the point of view of therapeutics now. So it's much better than it was. But we still have our fair share of uh, incurable, brutal um, disorders to deal with. And I think this is where um, kindness uh, can come in. And, um, you know, healing people is, is much more than just writing out prescriptions for tablets or offering them surgery. Um, it, it's almost a magical um, uh, um, quality which transcends evidence-based medicine and and I think well part of the reason for writing my book is to try to remind um, particularly younger colleagues and those who worship uh, science and technology that that's all very well and good and we we're all we're all extremely grateful for the um, advances in technology but the rest shouldn't be forgotten so in that sense it's it is a sort of more holistic approach it's not it's not um i, I certainly don't think you can reduce neurology to a list of scales or a check a checklist uh, because it's far too um, sophisticated and the brain is far too complicated for 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 that kind of process to ever uh, to ever be useful. So, could you give us a glimpse into the day in the life of neurologist? Um, well, of course, like all like scientists, like uh, doctors, like uh, it, it's of course different. There are different types of neurologists. I mean, the the, the typical neurologist, uh, I, I would say, or at least perhaps I could describe my own life. So I, I was um, a, a consulting neurologist, a staff neurologist at a, te at a teaching hospital. So um, my work would involve doing a ward round perhaps twice a week at the bedside, seeing patients, talking to them, telling them what we uh, thought was wrong with them and what we were going to do to try to help them. Um, a lot of the work would, uh, my work would be done in outpatients and that, that became <clears throat> even more um, prevalent as, as we got new technologies so that some of the conditions that when I started, we would have had to admit to the hospital for, for assessment, investigation and treatment could now be dealt with in the clinic. So as time went on, there was less inpatient hospital work and more uh, outpatient clinic work, seeing perhaps 10 patients in the morning, three or four new ones and six follow-ups. Uh, and then, uh, of course, there would be the teaching, um, and I'm a great believer in the small seminar for postgraduates and for undergraduates, so teaching a small group of um, students um, so that they get to know you and, they get, mm. and you can show them personally how to do things. And sometimes when we were short of patients on the ward, I used to take the undergraduates um, round 
the underground line um, in London. Um, so you will probably know that one of the lines is called the Sirtle Line, which comes back to where it starts. And it takes, <clears throat> it takes about an hour um, to uh, get round the line. So it's a good time period for, for doing a teaching session. So what, what I used to say to them before we left the hospital was that um, I don't want you to make diagnoses. And of course you mustn't make it obvious to anybody that you're staring at them. You have to try to melt into the background and become as if you were a spy uh, so that you're observing people without them knowing that you're observing mm -hmm. them. And I want you to observe behavior. I want you to observe abnormal movements. I want you to observe their mannerisms. If they get off the train, I want you to observe how they walk. And then when we, so, so that they would do, and of course we, I told them they mustn't take photographs. Um, of course, this, this, so this was all an exercise in, in observing and then equally important, trying to describe what you have seen. And this is uh, something which is absolutely vital for, to be a good neurologist. So it's no good being a good noticer uh, if you can't translate what you notice into words that you can explain to colleagues. So part of noticing is the, ver the written and verbal description. And again, this takes a little bit of time. And some people are, of course, much better at it than others. Some are good at, with similes and metaphors that, that bring uh, physical science to life. So this was a, not really an exercise in diagnosis. So we weren't going around the circle line trying to make medical diagnoses. It was more an exercise, for example, if you had witnessed a crime um, and you were being interviewed by the police to describe the assailant or the robber, well, how would you describe them? Um, because uh, I think the, the, you can improve your observation skills. It's not, I mean, some people are very gifted and many of these people become artists. And it's, it's, it's interesting that many of the pioneering neurologists like Charcot and Gowers at my hospital uh, had art as their hobby. So the, the, the outside medicine, uh, drawing and painting was the thing they liked to do best. So there is, if you've got a good eye and if you're a, vision, if you're a visionary, this gives you a very good uh, start in neurology. And um, I was quite good because as a, as, at school, I had two competing passions. Uh, one was art and the other was science. And I couldn't find a way of reconciling them because in the British system of education at that time, you, you had to decide if you wanted to be go on the art side or the science side. And it was only when my parents very wisely nudged me towards medicine that I was able to bring these two interests together. So I was able to link the art of healing with the science of modern medicine. And um, uh, I think if, you, if you're this sort of 
personality, then medicine is quite a good choice for you. I was, I found mathematics and physics quite difficult to do. I mean, I could, I was okay with them, but it, biology and chemistry were the things on the science side that, that, that I was more interested in. So um, the, the, this, you know, the, the, this, this was uh, one thing that, um, uh, I think has, has brought uh, is related to what I've called soulful neurology. Oh wow, that lesson sounds absolutely fantastic! I bet <laughs> you can learn so much more about human condition than just going through the books in the library. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you you'll know from your own training that um, you you can't. I mean, you you need to be shown sometimes how to um, see things. Mm. Um, and in order to really become proficient, you need to do things. So what, what, what I've always tried to do with my student teaching is involve, involve them. And in medicine, one of the ways you can involve people is of course, by getting them to see the patients because the patients are the best teachers. We, 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 as doctors and neurologists, we learn more from our patients than we do by listening to what they tell us than we do from any anything else. So I'm not such a fan of too much formal lecturing. I mean, I think obviously to listen to an inspired um, eminent neurologist who is a good orator um, can leave a lasting mark uh, uh, in in some situations. And at Queen Square, we still ma maintain um, what's called the, the old-fashioned clinical grand round, which has become logistically rather more difficult to do with mo with modern society. But what what we it, it was. Um, a method of teaching that was started by Charcot at the Salpetriere Hospital in 1860. And what, what we do is that, with, of course, with informed consent, and we usually don't have much difficulty getting the consent of the patient to agree. The patient comes down to the auditorium and the junior doctors take present the history and then the the consultant in charge of the ground ground will then elicit the physical signs so that the audience, although they're at a distance, um, still have the opportunity to see masters um, eliciting neurological signs and learning in a, in a more formal setting um, uh, rather than the bedside, a, a, a way of how to do the, the examination. So I, I'm still fond of that. And um, the, other, the other teaching method, which I think we, we, we've been keen to preserve at Queen Square is um, the clinico-pathological conference. So what the, the way this works is that, um, uh, uh, one of the junior doctors presents the clinical case of a person who has died and has donated her brain uh, for pathological examination. <clears throat> and I, I think pathology is the gold standard of um, neurology. And even with modern scanning, there are many conditions that we cannot diagnose apart from at autopsy. And um, the autopsy also helps
helps neurologists to remain humble and avoid hubris because um, we often find that there is more than one thing wrong with the brain uh, when we come to examine it at post-mortem. So the, the junior doctor presents the clinical history and then the audience have to speculate on what the neuropathologist might have found um, on examining the brain. And, and after the discussion and speculation has completed, the neuropathologist presents the uh, findings that he that have occurred at, at, at post-mortem. And, and I think this, this clinical pathological correlation um, still underpins um, diagnostic method in neurology, uh, as it does in many aspects of medicine. Of course, genetics has, has added a new element of taxonomy to um, the way we describe um, uh, conditions, but, but pathology is still particularly important, I think, in, in neurolo neurological practice. So we, we try very hard to get autopsies, particularly from people with disorders that we're not certain what they, what they had in life, um, so that we can try and improve knowledge and, and also um, feedback to the family um, about what actually was the, co the cause of their uh, loved one's um, demise. So this kind of approach to neurology is obviously very valuable and that's something that's uh, put across very well in your book as well. So I was wondering, is there enough space and even time within the modern medicine for these approaches to be kind of put mainstream? Well, you have to fight for them. I mean, nobody wants to pay for pathology uh, these days. Um, and you know there are there are certain threads within society. I mean, for example, there are certain religious groups who wish for their loved ones to be buried very rapidly uh, after death. Um, so it, it's it's become quite a lot harder to um, carry out post mortem examinations, which, which I think is a great pity because. When I was a student, uh, every lunchtime we used to go to the post-mortem room um, and the morbid anatomists would present um, the patients who had died um, overnight or that morning um, uh, and, and were having autopsies uh, to the students. And it was, a, a although it was... <laughs> You know, you know, it was a kind of um, ritualistic trial to see if you could survive medicine because it was fairly gruesome at the first time uh, one went to the post-mortem room, not, not just the smell, but the, the, the you know, entrails and um, organs <laughs> littered all over the autopsy room. Um, it was really a wonderful way of not just learning anatomy, but also learning how difficult medicine was because the physician who had looked after the case would be there, uh, would explain what they thought had been wrong. And we, we often, there were often, as I've already mentioned with the clinical pathological case 
um, rounds. Uh, there were often mismatches, so that um, misdiagnosis um, were, was not infrequent uh, in that situation. I would say in about one in five uh, patients' surprises occurred at autopsy. And what, what's very interesting is that um, despite all the advances in um, medical technologies that have occurred, re recent papers uh, from the United States where there are more than 70 million uh, medical errors uh, every year um, have shown that uh, medical misdiagnosis despite brain scans and all the other things, is, is still running at the same level as it was uh, 30 or 40 years ago, which is really a, a surprising and rather shocking finding, I think. So where do you see that technology can really contribute to modern neurology? And especially many of us would be wondering after COVID, uh, COVID uh, pandemic that um, some of these sessions were held over Zoom, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we, I, I think, you know, if, if you ask me what's the greatest advance that has happened during my career as a neurologist, I would say magnetic resonance imaging by, by a long way. Um, so the, the, this is the thing that has really changed the face of neurology. Um, but it, it, in the wrong hands, it can become a weapon of mass destruction and it can be um, used for profit, profit making, it can be used in many, many bad ways. So like all technology, it's how you use it. And you mustn't become a slave to the technology. One of the, a good neurologist uses the available technologies for the benefit of his or her patients and doesn't misuse them. And the, you know, the, the to give you an example of, of the egregious profit-making um, misuse of drugs, uh, of, of imaging techniques, uh, in my book, I describe a patient who had headaches in Florida, and he, he phoned up a local hospital because he was very frightened. Uh, he was asked to come immediately uh, on arriving, um, at the hospital reception, uh, he had to give his credit card. Um, he was then taken immediately without seeing a doctor. He took, he, he he filled in a, a a checkbox about headache. You know, do is how long have you had your headache? Two hours. Uh, what kind of headache is it? And then he was taken without seeing a doctor uh, to the imaging suite. Hmm. Um, the the following day, he saw a doctor who was sitting in a very large office with a lot of diplomas behind him in a desk, in an enormous desk that meant that um, he was distanced, the patient was distanced from this doctor by several meters, so he wasn't at all close to the doctor. Uh, and the doctor's chair seemed to be higher than the patient's chair. Um, and then uh, the doctor asked him a couple of questions, not a very cursory history lasting about five minutes, uh, didn't examine him at all. He didn't even touch him. 
and said, your scan shows some little white dots. Um, we need to do a whole pile of other tests. So he went through another pile of uh, investigations, all of this costing a lot of money. Um, and then the, at the end of it, it all, no, nothing really definitive was decided. Um, the patient was told that he needed to have repeat scans back in England in about six months. And when I saw this man, um, his headaches, which initially had improved a little because he felt that this system seemed to be super efficient and everything was being done very well, had come back quite quickly, particularly when he learned that there were some subtle abnormalities on his scan. Um, and uh, when by the time he got back to London, um, his headaches had come back. Mm -hmm. So I spent some time talking to him. I touched him, I put my hands on his head, I looked for causes of headache, felt his muscles, uh, and so on, uh, and reassured him that the small abnormalities that had been found on the scan were not relevant in any way to his um, headaches. So I liken them really to, as we get older, um, you know, we start to get little blemishes uh, on our skin, which are of no pathological significance. So I, I likened uh, these findings on the scan to that, which seemed to reassure him. And um, when he came back two weeks later, his headaches had gone. So, you know, you know th this is an example of um, uh, very bad medicine, I would say, awful medicine. So, you know, it's like ev everything in modern life. It's like, how, how do we use our own computers, we have to use them uh, judiciously and carefully. And then if we do, then they can be uh, of great value. Now, with respect to Zoom, um, you'll get, you know, people have different uh, views about Zoom. Um, I think from the point of view of education, uh, as we're doing now, um, it, it certainly has a very important role particularly with respect to outreach. I mean, I think, of course, we can reach far more people than we're ever able to do in a lecture theatre. Mm. Um, so uh, I'm quite, quite a fan of the hybrid model. Uh, uh, I don't think it will ever totally replace the charismatic, brilliant orator giving a lecture to uh, a keynote lecture in a an auditorium, because I think it's a bit like a musician who is live and, you know, if you like Bruce Springsteen, you want to go and see Bruce Springsteen live. You don't just want to listen to his records. Um, so, um, I, I, but I think in, certainly in education, it, it's got a, a, an important role. And I think COVID in that sense has made us pick up speed. You know, we should have probably been much quicker at using it more. Now, when it comes to medical consultations, um, I'm less convinced. Um, certainly, um, I don't think it could be used uh, to replace a, a new consultation in neurology. I think this, this would be indefensible in a court of law where you need to touch people, you need to examine people and you cannot 
do this uh, appropriately over a computer. Also, you cannot tell bad news over a computer, or at least I don't think you should be telling people bad news over a computer. Um, I think it, it's got its uses, for example, in people who are very incapacitated with chronic neurological handicap. And for example, they would find it almost impossible or at least a great effort to get to the hospital to see their doctor. Um, so provided that doctor knows them very well um, and knows of their problems, then I think for certain follow-up um, consultations, it, 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 it can be useful and gives us another dimension. But, you know, it's not, it's certainly not going to replace face-to-face -face, um, uh, work in hospital practice, not least because, you know, our juniors need to learn from live patients um, uh, how, how to diagnose and treat, treat people. So uh, telemedicine, from an educational point of view, I'm a great fan. Teleconsultations, uh, I think it may have a very limited role, um, uh, combined also with the telephone call. I mean, I think one of, as you, as you, I'm sure you know, one of the things about Zoom um, uh, is that it, it there is a, a, a lag in the voice time and the the sound. Um, and the expressions of the patient are not quite the same as if you're seeing them uh, face to face. So there are subtle differences which take a little bit of time to get used to. So where would you like to see the field of neurology going forwards in the future? Um, well, I, I think, you know, we, we have more than we still, although there have been considerable advances in neurological therapeutics over the last 30 years, particularly in the fields of epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. And of course, we've now got thrombolysis to treat certain types of stroke, if we can get them quickly. Uh, we still have a huge number of um, uh, very serious, untreatable and incurable uh, neurological disorders. So um, we, we are a long way behind, for example, cancer research, which um, uh, has, has, has had made far more inroads uh, into therapeutics in the last 20 years than we've managed to do in neurology. And of course, we're light years behind cardiology that has been revolutionized in the last 40 years. Um, so, you know, we, we need to find better ways of um, uh, understanding uh, what causes these disorders, mm. uh, to have a, a more open mind about um, uh, dealing with them. So that, you know, I mean, in science, as you probably know, I mean, it, it, science like art has it runs in fashion uh, and um, everybody gets fixed now on one particular idea or one possible pathogenetic cause, say, for mm -hmm. example, Alzheimer's disease. And a, and a, a more left field um, imaginative approach is more difficult because uh, grant giving bodies are fairly monolithic and rigid in, in the way they look at things. And if they 
are faced with a grant application that, that they don't know much about, or they 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 unfairly often call it a fishing trip. Um, they, it tends not to get funded. So I think the the, the whole system re really does need uh, a sort of shake-up, uh, a real revision. I, I think citizen science and patient um, involvement in research has started, but it needs to go much faster. And I think if you look at the history of my own um, area of research, Parkinson's disease, a lot, a lot of the most important findings have occurred by serendipity, um, by chance, by um, uh, folkloric observations, by patient observations, by chance findings in the laboratory. So I think if, if there was a way of um, teaching serendipity at university, I think this would be, would be quite a, a useful way forward. I mean, we, We've spent billion in, in neurology and in, in neurodegenerative disorders in the last 30 years, we've spent billions and billions of dollars on um, neuroprotective, potential neuroprotective and disease modifying treatments and nothing has come out of it. So I think it's, it's not unreasonable to ask the question, should we be doing things in a different way? I mean, as far as neurological practice is concerned, I, th I think one of my fears at the moment is that the, um, the, the good doctor and the good scientist are being split apart. Uh, when I started um, in neurology, it was possible to be a dilettante and we, we were able to do clinical research and collaborate with basic scientists um, and at the same time uh, have enough plenty of time to see a good number of patients so you could divide your week between being a good clinical doctor say three days a week and two days a week um, uh, either doing clinical research yourself or at least working with a team to to do it and I think that that model has become quite difficult now because and what what's happening is that certainly in the US the the best clinicians are now working outside uh, the big centers because the the big centers all they're interested in is getting big grants getting a lot of money and they're not really very interested either in good clinical practice or in medical education. So, so th this is a, a split which, which really worries me. And I, I would like to hope that a mechanism could happen so that um, clinician scientists could really be clinician scientists. And what, what I mean by that is that they're not leave the science to the scientists because they're better at doing it. So when, when I talk about um, clinical scientist, I talk about somebody who is curious about questions that their patients ask them and they can't answer. So for example, Professor Lees, uh, I've got Parkinson's disease, uh, will I get dementia? Mm. So th this is a question that I can't at the moment give um, a clear answer to and I would like to give a clear answer to that and one of the ways of trying to give a clear answer to that is of course 
by studying patients clinically in, in more detail and depth. So um, deep phenotyping, if you like, is, is one of the things which I think is in, in danger a little bit uh, at the present time. And what discoveries in your research and your process of writing your book, Brain Spotting, surprised you the most? Um, well, well my, I mean, my book is, it's like a Dr. Faustus in reverse. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's to try and show um, that you can be a doctor and still keep your soul, um, uh, if you like. And well, I've tried to do that by picking um, 10 essays that, that really describe very important moments and learning exercises in the, during my own career, which of course, some of them might seem a little ancient now to the modern practicing or the modern trainee, but I, I think that the messages that, un, that, that lie underneath the actual stories um, are very pertinent to what what what's um, what is needed today and what 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 really constitutes good medicine. So I think he, he, even with all the changes that that uh, have occurred in the system, um, the, the the increasing guidelines, algorithms, the control in the system, the homogenization to try and make us all. Uh, doctors become like either businessmen or uh, apparatchiks of the state. Um, uh, I think it's still possible to be a good good doctor, but you have to work a bit harder on it now. And one one of the new phenomena which um, you you'll be familiar with, and which has struck down certainly a lot of my colleagues in the United Kingdom is what we was called burnout. Of course, burnout means diff different things to different people, but it's basically that you don't, you find it very difficult to go into work every morning to do a job that you once loved and enjoyed doing. And I think one of the ways of combating this and which is perhaps why I never really felt burnout. I mean, it was, I, I loved, I've always loved going to work. It's never been a chore or an effort to go to work. It is to, to get this, this balance in your job description right um, and try to um, find ways of working within um, the, the, this new health, these new healthcare systems, which try to uh, strip doctors of their vocation and profession. And I, to, for me, that, that's what I would see as the, the greatest challenge for, uh, for, for romantic, soulful neurologists um, going forward. And we all know that neurologists work extremely hard and very busy during the day. So do you have like unlimited coffee on tap on the ward or do you have to bring your own? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I became addicted to coffee as a, like probably most students, but certainly most medical students. So when we were swatting and then when we were on call as junior doctors to keep awake at night. Um, so uh, I've been very relieved that caffeine is still one of the 
um, drugs that um, uh, we we can use without being <laughs> without running a, a, a risk of of harming ourselves. In fact, um, as far as the brain is concerned, it's very interesting because caffeine is said to reduce the risk of developing Parkinson's disease and possibly also uh, Alzheimer's disease. So uh, nothing so far has come up to suggest that drinking even industrial quantities of caffeine um, uh, damages the brain. The cardiologists may be a little bit more worried about very big doses with respect to causing heart rhythm problems and so on. But yeah, I think um, caffeine is a good stimulant and I've, I've all really been interested and still am interested in the, the possibility of developing a, a, a good smart drug that uh, we could all take, you know, that, I mean, modafinil is, is used now sometimes by students while they're studying. Um, but I, I think we could, develop a, a better and safer a smart drug that would um, be like caffeine, but, but would perhaps make us all be able to uh, achieve far more in our everyday lives and also be satisfied by what we do. So I think that I would like to see the pharmaceutical companies working on what I guess is to them quite a high risk um, topic of developing smart drugs, but but uh, I, I think it might bear fruit. Well, this has been a truly inspiring discussion, a discussion especially to our student listeners. So I wonder what are you focusing on now and what will be your next project? Um, well, I'm continuing, I'm still curious to find cures for uh, particularly for Parkinson's disease, which is my special interest. I mean, I, uh, when I went into neurology in the late 1960s, L-DOPA had just been discovered. And they, we, at that time, it was, of course, the, the 1960s. So we, we were full of optimism that we could cure all neurological diseases and that all the um, common neurodegenerative disorders would prove to be neurochemical deficiencies. Of course, this hasn't proved to be the case. And in fact, L-DOPA, which was the miracle drug of the late 1960s in neurology, is still the best treatment for uh, Parkinson's disease 45 years on. So th this, in a sense, has been an enormous disappointment that we, we haven't managed to find a better symptomatic treatment for Parkinson's disease than levodopa. So, you know, there's no place for complacency, at least in my field. Um, we've, we've not made as much progress as, as we would like to do. So, you know, I, I'm still interested in um, uh, hunting for new treatments and new cures and collaborating with younger colleagues uh, to do that. Um, uh, I, I think my own, the, the, my own personal or greatest achievement in medicine has been the reintroduction of a drug called apomorphine, a dopamine receptor agonist, uh, into clinical practice in the late 1980s. And this 
drug is now used all, all over the world as a treatment for late stage Parkinson's disease, uh, when it, where it's delivered through an ambulatory pump with a needle inserted under the abdominal wall. So that, that when people ask me, what, what, what's your greatest achievement? That, that's what it is. But I'd like to do, I still like to do even better. I mean, I'm going to continue, obviously, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm seeing few, far fewer patients now. So I have, have more time on my hands. Um, so I, I I'm going to continue to, to write, um, books, non-fiction books um, of, the, of the sort that I've written with Mentored by a Madman and Brain Spotting. So there may be more Brain Spotting to come in the future. And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, well, I'm a, I've, for my sins, I'm on Wikipedia. Mm. <laughs> so that my, my Wikipedia entry is correct, I think, at least when I last looked at it. Um, so I think that that's quite a good way of just looking me up and what I do and what I've done. Um, the, book, the book is published by Notting Hill Editions, who have got a very nice website, uh, which you can they, readers can easily find. And in, in that... There is an extract, there's a large extract of the book, which they can read for nothing. Um, if, if your listeners do decide to buy the book, I would really encourage them to buy the hard copy book, not a Kindle, because the, the, the hardback book, no expense has been uh, left in, in producing a wonderful book that will last forever. So the, the board's... Uh, pure linen, uh, the bookmark is satin, uh, the paper comes from the Lake District in England with a very attractive uh, Gordemont, Simonetti Gordemont uh, font, um, and um, the book is actually printed in Germany, as you probably know, most of the um, pr printing of books now goes on in the Far East and in India. So it, it, it's really a beautiful production. And I, and I think to re read it um, in Kindle would be a bit like um, a Zoom consultation <laughs> compared with a face-to-face -face consultation. Maybe I can put it like that. <laughs> yes, of course, nothing compares to holding the book in your hand for sure. Yeah, and even smell it. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it smells It smells of neurology. <laughs> <Beautiful>. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.